Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to also pay my respects to traditional owners of this beautiful country, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. My name's Lisa. I identify as a Wiradjuri Koori woman. My people come from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. I've got connections to other parts of Australia as well as to connections all the way overseas into a place called Scotland and Wales. I work here at the university and it's my very, very great honour this evening to be uh, with you uh, for the second part of the Sydney uh, Ideas Forum. I know many of you were at last night's film. Can I have a showing of hands, please, of who was there. Thank you. An absolutely profound uh, film. And tonight we're indeed honoured to uh, have two amazing people sharing their time with us tonight. But I'll talk about those people in just a few moments. So let's introduce our, um, our, our evening this evening. It's very much around looking at a film, a documentary that is being created to bring together a current story in the light of history. We know that in um, many years ago, Paul Keating in about 1992 did a speech called the Redfern Speech. And in it, he was absolutely impassioned about what was going on in the country at that time, about forced removals of children and what it meant around Indigenous injustice and he was appalled by it and in being appalled by that uh, people came on the journey with him uh, to try and understand a little bit more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. He admitted that the impact of white settlement had left a lasting scar upon this land and it was interesting to hear a Prime Minister say that when this is something that Aboriginal people have been saying since 1788. Another defining moment, of course, in history was in 2008 when Prime Minister Rudd apologised to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia, and indeed to all of Australia, for the horror and injustices that occurred as a result of forcing children away from their families from their communities, from their language, from their culture and extinguishing people's history and memory of who they really are and where they belonged. And this was something that has not, not touched every single First Nations person of this land. And it's a story that we know has been repeated around the world. And in this country, it's a story that has only recently been admitted by the authorities. And that is a true shame. We've had also the extraordinary uh, report on the forced removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from their homes and communities. And there, many Australians recognise that this should never, ever happen again. This should not continue. This terrible, terrible crime against the peoples of this land should not continue yet today we've got more children than ever being taken away. Today, we've got more children than ever in out-of-home care. And as a result of that, we've got more adults than ever who are children of those days who are themselves having their children taken away. So the intergenerational effect of this is absolutely profound. Professor Larissa Berent has made a documentary and many of you have admitted that you've seen it. And so you know what to expect this evening when we talk about it. I'll give you a tiny little pricey on Larissa. I'd be here for a long time if I actually read out her entire bio. But uh, she's a Gamilaroi woman. She's a professor of law at University of Technology, Sydney. She's a barrister. She's uh, been admitted to the Supreme Court of the ACT and to New South Wales, so she works a lot. And she's also an award-winning novelist and a filmmaker, and you'll certainly be seeing evidence of that this evening. Our second guest panellist is um, Bo Rambadali. And Bo is a proud Bundjalung man, and he is the director of the Post Centre here at the University of Sydney. He is a strong... Um, Indigenous health advocate and health worker, and he was born in Grafton, 
in New South Wales. So please join me in welcoming both of our special panellists. So the way we're going to do this is I've got a couple of questions that I'm, I'm going to ask our guests and we'll have a, a short yarn. Um, we'll also be looking at a couple of film clips. Um, so for the first part, I might start with you if it's, um, if it's okay, Larissa. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. This is a, an extraordinary piece of work and I have no doubt that it took a considerable amount of time um, and energy and effort and a lot of grief and sorrow and trauma um, for all, um, including yourself, of course. You've brought stories to life that many people uh, haven't understood until now and still continuing today. So this is where statistics come to life. So these are stories of real people in real contexts beyond what you see on the TV or in the newspaper. Can you share with us a little about why you've done this? Um, yes, thank you. And can I just also, before I start, um, thank Yvonne for her welcome to country. As a member of Metro, I'm always really proud when I hear Yvonne speak um, on our behalf and thank you for welcoming us here tonight, Yvonne, and for your leadership on this country. And I'd also just like to acknowledge Uncle Bo as well, who's had a lifetime of work here too. Um, so the, at Jambana, we run a clinic where we um, pretty much respond to whatever community needs seem to be growing. And over the last five years, we saw an exponential increase in the number of people who were either challenging docs removals or had been deemed inappropriate as carers as, who were grandparents. Um, and I, I guess it was a, I, I felt like we were hearing the stories that are in the film every day um, and that other people needed to hear that as well. I think even among our own people, even with our history of removal, there was still almost an assumption, an unconscious assumption that if docs were involved in a case, there must be something wrong, that the family must have done something wrong, that the parents must have done something wrong. Um, and we were finding more and more examples where that wasn't the case. I think another thing that's significant about the film is we've got stories that are from across the country um, and child protection is a state issue. So these are systemic problems that cut across. Um, and I, I guess I felt two things. One was that many Australians probably didn't realise that this was the case. And if they knew that the figures were increasing, they would be shocked. They would assume we'd had an apology and that this was an issue that was in the past so that they would be shocked and genuinely interested and concerned as to what was happening. So that, I think, for us was a big part of that, that target audience. Um, and, um, I mean, I guess the other thing for me in relation to that is how do you get these stories out is, um, you know, I became a lawyer to be an advocate for people and I think one of the things that I've learnt over time in my role doing that um, and perhaps also doing research is that sometimes advocating for people isn't about speaking for them but finding a space through which they can speak for themselves and their stories are a lot more powerful and I think the stories we were able to capture in after the apology was certainly examples of stories that are far more powerful when you hear them from the person who's lived them than they would be if we translated them. Um, there are a range of ways why it's hard for that to happen, so filmmaking's a way to make it happen. And you've had the opportunity of sharing this film with many people across Australia and many communities, over 100. Is that right? Yeah, so there's a process on the website where people can do community screenings. So we've had well over 100 of those where it's been uh, communities across the country. Um, so that's not including universities or um, we've had screenings within departments as well, uh, legal conferences, but just communities. And I guess there were two audiences for this film. The first was those Australians who, if they knew there was some an issue here, would be 
galvanised to ask why and perhaps get involved with something like the Family Matters campaign to express support. And the other the other audience was definitely the Aboriginal community. Um, we find when this often happens to people and they, they find docs involved in their families, particularly if it's the first time that's happened, one of the big emotions they express about feeling is shame, which stops them from talking about it. So we felt it was important to be sharing the stories so people knew that things that had happened to them were happening to other people. Um, and also to be highlighting, I think importantly in the film, we also focused on what the community response has been, not just that this is the problem, but how are people addressing it? And the sort of work of women like Grandmothers Against Removal helps communities see ways in which they can galvanise to make change. So um, for us, it's been um, incredibly important to have had a mechanism by which the film can start that conversation. One of the uh, parts of the story that you share tonight is a story of a woman called Barbara. Would you share a little bit about Barbara and then what we might do, if it's okay with everyone, is we might pay, play a bit of the clip of Barbara's story, yeah? Okay, so since we're going to play the clip, I'm not going to say too much other than, um, so let us speak for herself, but I can add a few things after she's spoken. But um, Barbara was um, somebody who had been um, very bravely emerging as a, uh, somebody who was on the national stage expressing her concerns. We were really mindful when we put the film together and chose people whose stories we were going to tell that they were people who would be able to be resilient if there were issues raised about the family. Um, it's one thing to tell your story, it's another for people to hear it and you can um, anticipate people are going to hear it with kindness and empathy, but that's not always the case. So we were very careful in who we chose and Barbara had been an absolute inspiration in Western Australia, where she's from, in terms of the sovereign grandmothers. Um, so she came on board very early. She was one of our very early collaborators in this space. Um, and her her story is heartbreaking and her resilience is, is inspirational. Okay, we might just roll that piece of film, please. I am a, a Noongar woman, uh, Perth, Western Australia. 19th of August, three years ago, I had sent my grandson um, Dylan and my granddaughter Tiara to school. At this day, he came back on his own. And then I asked him, I said, why didn't you wait for your sister, Dylan? He just walked past me and didn't say a word. I said, hey, Dylan, what happened? Because I could see he put his um, head on the door, his hands on his, uh, over his eyes, and he was just kicking at the fly-wire door. Very, very upset, very stressed out, hitting, hitting his head. I said, don't do that, I said to him. And he said, they've taken her, they've taken Tiara. And I said, where, what are you doing? They've taken her, the welfare's taken her. And I thought, no, it couldn't have. And sure enough, they did. Tiara has been through a lot with her mother. Um, there was a lot of um, domestic violence and things that she's had seen. Tiara actually had um, um, seen her mum too when she committed suicide. Um, Now, there were six, seven people there to kidnap her from the school. I didn't know what to do. I was just, just so upset and crying that my head was... I just couldn't believe that they could do such a thing like that this day and age. I didn't know where she was. I spoke to the docs worker and then she said, um, would you like to talk to her? I said, well, what do you think, I said. <laughs> and then I spoke to Tiara, and then I heard a little voice at the end of the line, all the way over there. 
I just thought, you know, what did I do wrong? Tiara was uh, not getting on at school, you know, the issues and uh, walking out of the class and that. They thought it was coming from home, but there was a little boy who was bullying Tiara at school. It was all this fabricated, all these lies that the doc said about me. I'm sending her to school with no lunch and everything. I've got a report from the principal from the school. And he said she's always been at school, always had her lunch, always did her homework. I knew I didn't do anything wrong. Now, then I went over and then I um, went to the courts and I had a few other grandmothers over there. I didn't know them. I was a stranger. They were strangers to me. We were all fighting for the same cause to get our grandchildren back. They said to me that I could have my granddaughter back, return her immediately. The um, lady from Docks brought her uh, to the motel and I said, oh, really, I get butterflies, you know, real, oh, I'm so happy. And then, um, then she pulled up and then she got out of the car and I seen her and she said to me, the first thing she said, and we gave her back, she said, I knew you'd come, Nan. I knew you'd come and get me, she said, because I prayed, she said, I prayed. The grandmothers against removals are a growing movement across Australia. It'd be good to hear a little bit about how you connected with them and, and how their stories came together. Sure. So um, i just make two quick comments about Barbara's story. When um, Tiara was removed, it's, um, the stories are always much more complex than you can condense them to, but uh, she was removed from Perth to Brisbane. So Barbara didn't know her granddaughter had been removed until her granddaughter was on the plane. And it took her nine months to go through that process of getting her back. So you can imagine how much trauma a child goes through, let alone the family. And just in terms of why we used animation, most all jurisdictions have uh, uh, prohibitions on reporting where there's a docs order in place or has been. So the use of animation was a way that we could hear Barbara's story, but she's not identified, so we're getting around. It's a creative solution to a legal problem. So when we started having more and more um, involvement in this area due to our casework, we came across Grandmothers Against Removal when they were just starting and support, uh, supported them in some of their early work and only in very small ways. So no way would I overstate that involvement. They've completely run this themselves and we were just privileged to um, be there uh, to watch them and, and support them in small ways to get them here and there in their journey. Um, and they built the network with women like Barbara and Western Australian Sovereign Grandmothers, the group in the Northern Territory, and the woman who's at the, the um, comes into the court as one of the Sovereign Grannies from um, Brisbane. So um, just by virtue of us working in that area, um, our paths cross because of their, their policy work. And one of the things I just think is really interesting that you see in the film as we go through that in relation to the grandmothers, I mean, as I said, we met them when they were just a group of grandmothers who'd, got, who'd all realised the same thing was happening and that this was a big issue and they needed to galvanise. And you see at the beginning that they're protesting and doing a lot of protests. And over time, you see them starting to think diff about different approaches, about developing policies. And, and I think what's been also interesting about them is that they have gone from being people who never thought of being change makers and never thinking that they had to be, to actually being really incredible change makers and thinking very deeply about not just protesting in the streets about what's wrong, that it's really important, um, advocating in different circumstances, but actually confronting policy makers, um, confronting politicians, demanding a voice at inquiries and getting a seat at the table and having a real influence. The fact that New South Wales Docs has adopted their guiding principles, I think, is an extraordinary achievement for a group of grandmothers who never thought that they would be doing that.
It's the power of the people, really, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. that whole grassroots kind of movement, and it's it it's coming at a time when we probably need more of it than ever. And uh, it's it's good to hear Docs has done this, but really, is it something that's going to be sustained beyond? the current term of whoever the DG is in that organisation? That's my question. Yeah, no, I think I think um, the, certainly um, the, the women who've been responsible for the change have been very diligent, but I think one of the challenges is it takes the kind of work that Hazel has done in Gunnedah. You need really strong community um, partnerships and you need to have... Um, be supporting the capacity of the community to engage. Um, so there are places where um, stronger communities are able to do that, um, but the amount of capacity building that needs to go into ensuring communities can provide the role that they should is um, is also important. I guess the other thing that that we would that that I think is clear is that it's not just about improving docs; it's about actually saying. Child protection is an issue that shouldn't be um, overseen by the state. It should be overseen by the community. So a very big message in the film is the importance of the community-controlled sector. Um, And, in fact, I I guess um, I'm not speaking for anyone else when I say this is my personal view, though I know it's shared with other people who've done this kind of work. I don't think there is any fixing of docs. I actually think the only thing to do is to transfer that control back to the community. Um, If you can have a woman who is as grounded in the community and is as concerned about our issues as Linda Burney was, and she, as the... Um, as the minister couldn't make those changes from the top down, uh, then I think it shows this mm. how, how broken the system is. Um, and uh, I haven't seen any evidence that we're able to change that, that systemically. I think the only solution is a transfer of that control back to the community. That's not a radical idea either. Victoria is doing it and Queensland is doing it. I think we need to do that in New South Wales as well. Um, and we don't here in New South Wales have a... Uh, uh, at Commissioner for Aboriginal Children, and I think we should have one of those as well. Yeah, it's, it's basically that whole message, isn't it, of let's not keep doing the same thing That's time right. and time again and expect it to be different yeah. because it's not. Now, you also have another little clip here um, from Kerry, and this time it's an experience here in New South Wales. Do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction to that yeah, one? Yeah. Um, so probably, it's again, I won't say too much, Um other than that, um, Kerry was a case that we actually did, uh, th- we came across through our own work um, and connected to another large case that we were working on up in Barraville. Um, so it was just through that connection that we got involved. Um, I might actually just let you play the clip and then give you the context of how what happened to her happened because the broader story about how she found herself under doc scrutiny is actually quite horrific. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a mother of five children. I could never think that docs, you know, had a right to come and take anybody's children unless, you know, if you're doing something wrong. But in this case with me, with Stella, they did. It was just that Monday that I was out at Parramatta Children's Court with my younger son. He was found not guilty with a crime that he didn't do. That's when, unknownst to me at the time, the police were putting in a report against me to say that Stella was living in an unsafe environment. By the end of the week, the police came into my home and they had the warrant to have Stella removed on a Saturday morning. I was just in shock. I didn't know what to think. I started grabbing all of Stella's clothes and They said, you can grab a toy, and Stella was upset. She didn't know what was happening because she was 18 months at the time. She was still on the bottle. She still slept with me. I heard a voice, and I believe it was my grandmother, and she had said, listen to what they ask of you. So when I heard my nan's voice, I knew that and she was telling me to be calm and just do what they ask of you, so I did. When I looked at the warrant, it had stated that both natural parents are drug users. I'm not a drug user, I don't take drugs. 
the judge had written that I had a dog and that Stella was playing in the kitchen with dog feces. And the dog's workers, they said, Kerry, do you own a dog? And I said, no. I felt from them that they knew straight away that they were placed in something that wasn't supposed to happen. It was on the Monday morning and I had a phone call from the docks worker. They said to me that they needed to inspect the unit and they needed to see if it was suitable for Stella to live here. I don't know whether if I'm living up to their expectations, do I have to have a cot? Because that's what white society, they do, they put babies in a cot. I signed the safety plan. That's when they said that they were gonna give Stella back. We walked in and, and they opened the door and she was hiding behind the chairs. We ran over and we grabbed her and she just wouldn't let us go. She just held us. She cuddled me and the dogs workers looked at us and, and they could see that the impact of what they had done, you know, to the family. I. I had to live through that and experience that, I feel like. I just hope to God it doesn't happen to another family. So Kerry's mother was also had also worked for Docs, so finding herself in that position was something that was just, when she says, I didn't think this could happen to me, she was incredibly genuine about that. Um, and you would have picked up in the story that the notification to Docs came from the police. And so we'd known Kerry's family through doing the work at Barraville and had actually gotten involved with the closer family situation because when they'd moved down to Marrickville, her oldest son got picked up by the police um, and gave his name. And when no criminal record came up, they started to charge him with having a false name giving a false name, which of course he hadn't done. Um, and we, there's obviously some action taken about that and he started getting um, followed by them and then the charge that he got found not guilty of was throwing a rock through a window. It's a typical case where it would come to an overcrowded um, legal aid lawyer on a Monday morning and it's a child's word against the police um, and the usual advice would be to plead um, luckily, because we knew the family, we got involved earlier and got CCTV footage, which showed that it wasn't Jonathan. And as a retaliatory thing, the docs notification was put in against Kerry. And the most hideous circumstance. And I guess, so, which is, so in a way, this is an example of where docs involvement isn't just because of docs, but because of another agency. And I guess the other thing I'd just um, pick up is that, so even though, as Kerry says, docs realised fairly quickly that a mistake had been made when they came in because the complaint did not match her circumstance, they still removed Stella on the Friday afternoon, which was a deliberate move. There was no Aboriginal caseworker available and very little ability to challenge. They didn't get Stella back until the next week. Um, so there was already trauma there. Um, it's a circumstance that if a child's removed like that, you can't just say, well, give them to my sister. The person has to be docs approved. So I still had to go through that process. And you would have noticed that even though they found this was almost a false, a false report, um, Kerry still had to go through the humiliating process of that safety plan and being judged about her parenting. I think it's really profound when you hear her say, I didn't, I didn't have a cot. Is that how I'm going to be judged? That's a very real fear. So um, in a way, although this was a, a fairly very different story to Barbara's, I think there are some things in, in her story that are equally as shocking and um, point to parts of the system that really need fixing. And it's one of those things that stays, isn't it, really? And the fact that the child was removed, even mm. though the child was wrongly removed, that still remains mm. in the record. That's not something that you can get rid of in a hurry. That's right. So, Bo, you were heavily involved with police. You spent 10 years um, with the police and working with them specifically around uh, looking at the um, response, the New South Wales police response to bringing them home. And this is a contemporary story. This is a recent story and probably a story that's happening today somewhere. Um, but years ago, this was a, a, something that was still there you know it's so stuff hasn't changed so can you talk a little bit about your experience with this of those times 
Um, look, I can't start just at the report of bringing them home. You know, after seeing the, uh, the film, I, um, the documentary uh, opened some wounds for me as well. When I was born in this country, I wasn't a citizen. I had no civil rights whatsoever. The authorities could and did whatever they liked to me and my family. My mother uh, was a single mother of seven kids and um, they're all gone now except me. And uh, mum always trained us and stayed in places where she could keep an eye out to ensure that we were protected and weren't taken from her. And she always picked places on the outskirts of, of town so that you could see people coming and going. <clears throat> Whenever she saw things or traffic coming, she had us trained uh, where we lived. We lived, our house was on the, at the back of our house was a swamp. So I used to have us trained so we'd, she'd scream out the warning and we'd all take off out the back and, and lay in that dirty stinking swamp until mum said it was safe to come out. The authorities didn't ring us up because we didn't have a phone. We didn't, uh, we, we, we were lucky to have food on the table at some time. Uh, they come at all hours of the day, of the night, and they're not very particular about the season. They come either and come in the middle of winter. So if mum gave us a warning, we'd take off and dive in the back of that, in the swamp, and lay there till mum said it was safe to come out. It was a cold place to lay when you're, uh, you're very young and um, in the middle of winter. And it was also uh, a horrible place to lay in the, in the middle of summer when you're eaten by mosquitoes. One time, my, uh, one of my brothers didn't hear the warning. So they, they got him and they took him. And uh, mum lost two, two children, young children, at an early age. And um, she, she was in a lot of hurt and pain because of that, just like any mother would be if they lost a child or two. We used to all sleep together in a, on a tick in, the, uh, in one of the rooms, we were sleeping together. And, Laying next to mum, I'd hear her moan and groan and cry because of the hurt and the pain, but also the guilt of not protecting my brother. Growing up in this town, I was forever picked up by the police. They'd pull me up in the street and they'd say I was drunk. They'd stand on my toes and go up on their toes and they do whatever they can to provoke me to do react to their actions. I never did. They'd chuck me in the back of that police car. And on the way to the police station, they'd tell me, you're going to be charged up here. You're going to be before the court. You'll end up in jail. Or we can go behind the car dealership and we can sort it out there. Well, I never had a job. I didn't have any income. That was the best economic position for me. So I agreed to go behind the car dealership where I stood there while they flogged me. And it was one of the best floggings I've ever gotten in my life. And they told me, get on your black sea. Yes, sir. I walked home, and on the way home, getting close to the bridge, there was another police car coming off the bridge, and they saw me struggling, and they pulled out and they said, what's wrong with you, you drunk? I said, no sir, I just spoke to the police, they told me to go straight home, this is who I am, this is where I live, this is where I'm going. They took me back to the dealership 
and they flogged me again. I didn't know why I got flogged and I didn't know why they took my brother. I didn't know why all the hurt and pain and the guilt that my mother carried all those years. All my schooling had finished. I was deprived of proper education. There was no opportunities for me in this town, so I left it. And actually, I was on my way to a place called Wyala because they told me at the Social Security office so I had a job down there as a welder, so I thought I was a welder. Cut a long story short, I um, went back to school when I was in Sydney. And to start off with, I got two things were playing on my mind. And one of them was about the pain my mother went through because they took my brother. And I tell you what, I can still feel every hit they gave me, those coppers. I never forgot them. So I went back to school. I ended up getting a job. I was a num uh, one of 12 Aboriginal caseworkers that ended up working for um, Youth and Community Services, these called docs in those days. I worked with them um, and I stayed with them for a large number of years too because I wanted to find out why they took my brother. I wanted to know why the, all the hurt and the pain my mother went through. I was, like I said, one of 12 Aboriginal people in the Addison's caseworkers. Uh, they ended up um, upskilling us to become district officers in the Department of Youth and Community Services. And um, I ended up heading up and working in the uh, in an Aboriginal unit called Gullamar, which is uh, the Aboriginal, they used to call it the Aboriginal Specialist Section of the department. And I asked Mum for an Aboriginal name, a, a Bunjalung name that could make it a helping place. So we called it Gullamar, which means welcome, come here. And we had a close relationship with, with people. And uh, we had a lot of Aboriginal people that, uh, that worked with us from all over the state. I moved around to a few other government departments since then. And I, uh, I never forgot those floggings I got. So I ended up in the New South Wales Police. I stayed there for nearly 10 years. I don't know how I stayed there that long because it was one of the most racist places I've ever worked in my life and I've ever experienced in my life. When I went there, I uh, sat down with uh, Tony Lauer, the, uh, the Commissioner of Police at that time. He wanted to know why I wanted to work there. And I told him why I wanted to work there. I told him about them floggings I got for nothing. And I said, I wanted to see what I could do about changing that. When I got there, there's commission's instructions, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of commission's instructions, all about how to use your, your, your gun and, and, uh, and, and what uniform to wear and what season, how to drive a police car and turn on that fruit salad on upstairs and all that sort of stuff. But there was nothing in their dealings with people. It was all about control. And I want to see about changing that. So I was lucky I had a commissioner at that time that listened. I wrote two things while I was there. One was a, a statement about the close relationship that Aboriginal people had with police and what that meant. And the other one was a strategic plan that um, focused on communication, education and police discretion to see what we can do about changing the way police treat Aboriginal people. So that's why I ended up in the New South Wales Police. And while I was in there, the uh, Bringing Them Home report was underway and, and they asked me to respond to it. They didn't allow me to um, drill too far back into the past and what they've done or how they've done things. 
they wanted me to concentrate on things that we've already been doing and, and to improve the close and difficult relationship that police had with Aboriginal people in New South Wales. So we set up a um, part in drawing the, the plan. We, we set up a, a council, a police Aboriginal council with the representatives and all the police regions uh, so they could go to the commander and speak about the issues that impacted on them and then they come together on a quarterly basis to sit down with the commissioner who chaired that meeting. I was also, um, while I was in there, I was also the Minister and Commissioner's Police representative on the Aboriginal Justice Advisory Council, which was chaired by an Aboriginal judge, Bob Blair, and a well-known barrister, Lloyd McDermott. Um, and I was on that team with them. And, and those two people helped me grow and understand what was happening with my people. But it's sad to understand that the things that were happening during that time, and even the things that were happening to me, are still happening today. But uh, difficult to understand sometimes. Yet we, uh, we, we're always holding out the, uh, the olive branch, trying to let non-Aboriginal Australia know that we've got so much to offer this country. We've got a, like Yvonne said, we've got a, the oldest living culture in this world, on this planet. Non-Aboriginal Australia can learn a lot from the things that we've done and the way we've looked after this country. We've lived in harmony and everything around us. We never considered ourselves to be superior to a plant, an animal, or another human being. We lived in harmony with everybody. The rivers were flowing, plenty of food source. To hear that more Aboriginal children are being removed today than at any other time during the stolen generation, tears my heart. I thought we'd been past that. We'd been through that. But obviously, we've got a lot to learn. And it's pleasing to see that Lucy has got this, where we're, she's an advocate by telling these stories that every Aboriginal person on this continent can relate to. Those stories are our stories. When I saw the, the story, um, it opened some old wounds for me from the past and uh, I had difficulties dealing with that sometimes. But I think that if we can get non-Aboriginal people to understand and also be an advocate for what's happening to our kids, we're only 3% of the population and you're 97%. So we can't do this without you. We need you to come with us. Neither of us are going anywhere. We're going to learn to live together. And we can do that in harmony. I think that when I heard that speech from, from Paul Keating, I think in a way he was, he was drafting a roadmap for us, yeah. for everybody, to say, this is our path. The sad part about it, he didn't, he had no way of forwarding that memo onto these future prime ministers to say, here it is, let's do it. And uh, we're in the mess we're in today, but it's not too late. We can get out of this and we will. We can work together and we can make a difference. My grandson, and I've got 10 of them, and I've got two great-grandkids. I want to make this country a better place for them as well, as I do for all Aboriginal kids and all non-Aboriginal kids. Solid words and uh, profound and very 
brave, thank you, and courageous. What do you reckon? Pretty awesome. I suppose the whole thing that we must remember is that this is an historical legacy that is not historical. It's today. And the recognition that we can't do it alone, anything that happens on this land because you call it home, is also something that you have to address, that we have to address together. And uh, the wisdom um, that you've heard from Bo and Larissa tonight is profound. I'm going to open up the floor to some questions um, because I know a few of you do have some uh, queries. I know that uh, while we're turning up the, the audience lights and getting some people ready with some microphones, so if you do have a question or something you'd like to say, please raise your hand and one of our mic people will uh, come to you, is that... Um, after working with the police and, and working with the government, you came uh, into the post centre and started working um, with communities about what is needed um, with regards to health. Can you tell us a little bit about how that operates in a way to empower people um, beyond uh, the story? Yes. I. It's another place that, uh, yeah, so I follow nearly 70 years old and... Um, I uh, I came here because um, my people are sick. My people have the worst health outcomes than anybody else in this country. So I heard about the Pate Centre and I thought that the good work that the previous director was doing was something that I could add value to. And in adding that value, I thought that I could be a strong advocate for the things that impact on my people. And in doing that, I thought I was in a position to also to look after the integrity of this university. At the Page Centre, we, we do research. We do promotion, we do preventive and we do clinical work. We've got people helping us in that area too. And... Uh, in 2008, the, uh, the states and the federal government uh, introduced closing the gap. And they introduced that because our people was getting sick and they were getting sicker. And you know, my people, around 30 years ago, were the healthiest people on this planet, on this continent. We didn't even have the common cold. Today, we're at the mercy of a health system. So at the Page Centre, we had three main strategies that we wanted to try and deal with. And that was healthy kids, because we wanted to get our health kids healthy. And we wanted healthy teeth and healthy hearts because heart attacks is the number one killer, not only of Aboriginal people, but you can, on Aboriginal women, it's the, the biggest killer of, Ab of women in Australia and uh, you can times it a few more when it comes to Aboriginal women. women. And Aboriginal women are, are the strongest species you can find on this continent. That's why I think that we had that because of her we we can. And um, and I certainly saw that firsthand through the eyes of my mother. And uh, because of the things that we're doing out there in regional remote areas of, of New South Wales, and that's who we were being concentrating on. Uh, because they haven't got access to the services that are available here. So it gave us an opportunity to upskill Aboriginal people in those regional remote areas of New South Wales. And we, um, we've upskilled 451 
450. Aboriginal scholars. 450. In a range of disciplines. Precise. Yeah. <laughs> Who've got over 500 qualifications because the governments have taken those services out of regional remote area of New South Wales. If, a, if an Aboriginal woman or any woman that wants to have a baby in, say, for example, Brewarana, she's got to jump on a bus and fly all the get down there to Dubbo to have the bubby and when Bubby comes back on the bus to get back home. And uh, if you have a hip replacement or a knee replacement, there's no allied health out there to help you. There's nobody to help you get you back on your feet. The uh, doctors do all the work and put all the pieces together, but then you need somebody to actually oil it up and get it working, and that's what we've been doing is training Aboriginal people up to do that. And um, we do research because... And we do research at the invitation of Aboriginal communities. We don't sit in uh, uh, an office over here in this university and say, be a good idea to do this in um, this particular town or that particular town. We wait till we're invited in. And we have a uh, model of co-design where we work together with Aboriginal communities. We do what they know, because they know what needs to be done in these communities. They understand. So we get invited in there and we sit down and we share the risks and we share the, uh, the journey to try and find answers to some of the questions that they've raised. And uh, that's the area of research that we do with them. And we're working with a community uh, now um, where uh, non-Aboriginal people in, a, in this day you know, you've got a library. So if you've got a particular disease, a clinician can go to that library and, and pull out a book and, and open it up and find something that's going to help you with your disease, cure your cancer or help you with your chemo. They can look there and they can find out what's not going to work as well. They can find out what's going to kill you. My people don't have a library. We haven't got one, so we're trying to get something together where we can work together to try and get a library to help my people get well. I went to one particular community and that's the one that was wanting some answers and um, when you engage with them and you've got a relationship with them and some of these relationships, they build on mutual respect and trust and once you've got the respect of my people and the trust of my people, you've, you've got the respect of my people, you're in the door. You... Uh, you can lose it fairly quickly, but if you uh, don't follow through with what you say you're going to do. I was sitting around this table and I was talking to uh, some Aboriginal people, mainly Aboriginal women, and uh, they were telling me, and I picked up another thing that was going on in this community, is that they said, I was born with one kidney. Oh, my brother over there, my auntie there, my uncle there. she has gone through about half a dozen of them, all born with one kidney. I thought, we have to have a look and see what's going on in that area too. Because I told them I had two. <laughs> and they thought I was a freak. <laughs> um, and I said, it's just not normal, you should have two. So we're working with that community. With promotion, we, uh, every year in October, uh, we uh, have a, um, a packing day where we pack 10,000 kits for kids and we send them out to Aboriginal medical services and schools around New South Wales. Free of charge. We, we, we pay for all that. And we go and uh, we get um, relationships with people like Colgate to throw paste, toothpaste and, and brush in there because to buy those sort of things in, in the bush could cost you 10 bucks for a tube of toothpaste. Um, and uh, when you're on some side of benefit and you're, you're like my people are, you those sort of things aren't on the shopping list, are they? <laughs> so um, that's the other thing we do in helping kids. Um, uh, preventive, we've got a team of people that go out there. We've got a dental van and we've got a health van to go out there and, and uh, show people that uh, the good work that we do. And we've got clinicians that go out there and also work with them. We've got ear, nose and throat specialists going to some communities where there's a high need for that. Pardon me. And there's uh, dentists that go and oral health therapists to go to other communities to uh, provide services. So they're the things that we, that we do. And uh, can I say that 
I know the gap isn't closing, but I can say that for all the positive work that is happening out there, it's got the footprints of the Poach Centre all over it. <laughs> so one of the key things that came out of what Bo was sharing with us was very much about community knows what's needed. You know, community, if community leads something, then guess what, you end up with a very different outcome. And this is, this is relevant for what we're talking about with Larissa's work. Now, I know we've got some questions up here, so we've got someone with the microphone. just want to say that the greatest challenges are is that there isn't ownership or accountability. It always comes back to Aboriginal people to own, but never actually to respond. And so I, I after watching the film last night, like I, I spoke to my mum and I challenged, I was so challenged and I'm still challenged here tonight to find what is the answer, what is the solution? And, you know, I, I, work for, I, I own a job in youth justice. 50% of our young people are in detention are Aboriginal. The fastest growing prison population in this country and in this state is by Aboriginal women. Mm. If our Aboriginal women are getting locked up, then what's happened to our Aboriginal children? Mm. I have a real challenge. I went home last night and I, I couldn't sleep because I don't understand what is the solution. And as an Aboriginal woman that has been actively involved in my community and with my people my entire life, I really struggle with the fact that we are not heard. That's the truth of it. But the other part of it, and I don't want to cast blame, but there's a real division around what is racism in this country. Mm. People do not want to own that. If you look at the documentary about Adam Goods, people still don't want to own that. We have a political landscape and we also have a media landscape that shows that Aboriginal people are less than. And that's the truth. When we started this year, we had five young people under 16 years of age that committed suicide within a nine day period. No one covered that in mainstream media. Mm. So if we don't want to own the fact that this country is racist, and I don't want to point the finger, but I know that this is what we live. The fact that we are talking about the stolen generations and that the apology took place and yet we're still dealing about stolen generations. If we talk about, and I don't want to minimise and I'm not minimising the impacts of the institutionalised uh, sexual abuse that took place in this country. There has been major changes in this country as a result of that happening to everybody. Mm. If this behaviour happened to everyone in this country, we'd have a different landscape, but we do not because it's only happened to a component of this country, which are Aboriginal people. So I think the challenge for everyone, which I tried to capture in a few minutes in a welcome, is that what is it that we all live? Do we live the same? And I would say no. The fact that I have to tell my children to expect to be targeted by police, mm. to expect to be incarcerated, to expect to be less than, because that is the truth. That's not because I want a pity party. It's just that I feel that I, and I, and I feel like I failed as a mum, that I need, and I'm now a grandmother, I feel like I have failed, that I have had to skill them up in a way, in ways that they should not be skilled in. And that's not because that's your fault, that's because it's accepted. And if that acceptance is the way we are dealing with life in this country, then we need to all ask ourselves, what is it that we can do? And it's more than a documentary, it's what we all need to do as human beings to other human beings. And unfortunately, that memo that you're talking about, Unc, is not owned by the politicians. And I'm talking about all governments. Mm -hmm. It certainly isn't changing the laws that Larissa works and advocates on behalf of. The only way we can do it is we need to continue to vote in a particular way, but we also need to be uh, very vocal in that voting but also vocal in our being and what we want to continue to contribute to. Because I don't understand how I can be paid. And when I got into my role in youth justice, I was asked the question, what do you bring? 
And I actually said, I bring myself because I want to do myself out of a job. Can other people say the same thing? And I would say no. So thank you. I just, just as a final thing, um, I hope everyone is moved by the stories you heard and particularly what Yvonne and, and Uncle have said. And the point of the documentary was, as Uncle said, it's not to make people feel guilty, but to make you feel angry that this is still happening. So I would encourage you to not be passive about that. You can go to the Family Matters website, which is a community-driven campaign that can link you in to all of the advocacy being done around this area. You can support those campaigns. You can support the community controlled sector and you can find out more. They keep all of the statistics up to date. Um, so please, as, if, as part of the challenge that, that Yvonne set you, if you at all feel moved about these stories, don't just take what you've heard home, take it to heart and reach out and see what you can do to help people who are really trying to make a difference. With that, I'm going to say thank you very, very much. Please take away that message and do something. Just don't go home and think you've had an interesting night. It is definitely important to download parts of it. You can actually get this um, film uh, online. Um, you can show it to people. You can send it to people. You can make comments about it. You can log on to the spaces that you've been told about. Um, but, yes, I, I think it's too late for people to remain active now. It's uh, To remain passive now, it's time to get active. Please uh, join me in thanking Yvonne Weldon, the restaurant. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.